Good morning, church. There's a lot going on in the world, isn't there? A lot going on in this church today. I think of this morning, Paula McCrill and the news that we received. Uh, she's not here with us today. Dan is. Make sure you go and speak with him and pray uh, for his wife. I think of Andrew and Carrie, who spent a restless night on Saturday with their son in the hospital. Thank you for being here today. Be praying for him, too. And as Kyle mentioned, we got the news today that Gordon is in the hospital. The Lord is faithful, even in the midst of what we see on the news, what we get from Judy in an email about people in our congregation. Our text today is Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 26. And in it, we see two individuals displaying amazing faith in Jesus. And sometimes when things like what's going on in the world and what's going on in our congregation happen, it's difficult to place our faith over and over, day in and day out in Jesus Christ. Faith is a word we hear a lot. It's a common word in the world taken from the church. It is a Christian word. And when we hear it used in the world, we sometimes are tricked into thinking that they are also one of us. But faith, we hear it all the time. On a talk show, you might hear that someone's faith got them through some difficulty. Others say that if you just have enough faith, you can manifest anything into your life. Still others say that in order to live a happy life, we have to have faith in ourselves. It's kind of a catch-all term for the world. If you just believe hard enough, it's got, a, got this magic quality to it in the world. I think that the world would define faith like this. A general good feeling of strong belief that I make myself have so that I can feel happy and full of love and wealth and things. But when we press people on what they have faith in, they have many possible responses. Faith in oneself, faith in the universe, faith in my prosperity and my future, faith in good outcomes, so on and so forth. Faith is seen as this good in and of itself, right? Something everybody should try to have. Faith's object doesn't matter very much as long as we have faith. But the object of faith matters more than the amount of faith that we have or the quality of faith that we have. What the world fails to realize is that faith is only good when the object of that faith is Jesus Christ. And as a reminder this morning, in light of a chaotic world, and suffering amongst friends, faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that keeps us tethered. Amen? Let's stand and read Matthew 9, 18 through 26, these, about these two women who demonstrate this kind of faith, two demonstrations of faith. Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. 
And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, And saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord. We submit ourselves to you now. We ask that you would help us to understand your word and make it a part of our lives. Bury it in our hearts where it will stay and where we can pull upon it when we need it. We thank you for your word that constantly speaks to us and for your spirit that helps us understand. We pray that that work would be done now in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the beginning of Matthew 9, we saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man. But before he heals him, you remember what he says? He says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes then question in their hearts about this, thinking Jesus is blaspheming. Then then right after that, he calls a sinner to follow him, Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew opens up his home to Jesus and his disciples, and he throws Jesus a huge feast. And this feast gets Jesus into some hot water with the Pharisees and with John's John the Baptist's disciples. The Pharisees ask why he eats with sinners. And John's disciples ask why he eats while they fast. Everyone wants to know what Jesus is up to. The religious elite are not particularly thrilled with him. But Jesus answers their questions and he tells them what he's up to. He came to save the lost. He's the bridegroom who came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus' motivations in this chapter are for the lost and the hurting. And that's exactly what we see here today in verses 18 through 26. This passage is structured in an interesting way. It's two separate miracles sandwiched into one story. We might expect Matthew to separate these out a little bit. But the healing of the woman is sandwiched right in between the story of Jesus raising a young girl back to life. And one obvious reason he does this is because it actually happened that way. But that's no coincidence. These two miracles have a lot in common. So we're going to walk through verses 18 through 26 as a narrative first. And then we're going to look at two major takeaways from today's text. Let's look first at the ruler's faith. Verse 18 says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Matthew intentionally places this story as almost an interruption to last week's story. It comes right on the heels. It happens immediately afterward. The ruler approaches Jesus while he's still speaking. Now, Matthew doesn't clarify, but Mark tells us this man's name is Jairus, and he is a ruler of the synagogue. Synagogues were places of worship and prayer for the people of Israel outside of the temple. Sacrifices 
could only be made in the temple, but synagogues served as gathering points for various towns where Jewish people lived. They were ruled by a group of elected men. So this is one of those men, a ruler or elder in the synagogue. And he approaches Jesus. But before he makes his request, he kneels before Jesus. Do you see that? That's worth mentioning because this man, just like all the other opponents of Jesus in chapter 9, is one of the religious elite. He's most likely a Pharisee. To be an elder in a synagogue would mean you are really respected. He's a prominent religious figure in the town of Capernaum, well-respected and probably wealthy. So this gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope because often we see in the book of Matthew, the opponents of Jesus Christ, and we think they're all like that. But this guy's not. He's one of the religious elite. He understands who Jesus is. And he comes before him and he kneels before him. Jesus has interacted with the religious elite in Capernaum a couple of times in this chapter. But now one of them, one of the most prominent ones, an elder in the synagogue, kneels before him and he pleads with Jesus to come with him to his house to raise his daughter from the dead. Okay, imagine for a second that you are standing there watching this. You're hearing the conversation Jesus is having with John's disciples, and all of a sudden this religious leader comes up and kneels before Jesus, a highly respected man in your town, bows himself before Jesus and pleads with him to help his daughter. This man is very obviously to you distressed. His daughter has just died, his little girl, and no one could help her. In desperation, he searches the whole town all morning for the one that he thinks might be able to bring her back. He's heard of Jesus' miracles, I'm sure. Maybe he's even seen a couple of them. Capernaum's not a big town. Could Jesus save his daughter? It's the worst morning of his life. Running around desperately trying to find him, and then he finally does. There he is. And this desperate man... I can't can't even imagine the emotions that he's feeling right now. I don't want to imagine the emotions he has. I can't imagine losing my daughter and feeling completely unable to help. But here's Jesus. And if anyone can bring her back, it's him. So he throws his religious respectability to the side and kneels before the only person capable of saving her, of staving off death. And he asks Jesus to lay his hand on her, believing that if he just does that, she will live. Asking Jesus to lay a hand on her is already a display of faith. We'll get to that in a bit. This kind of faith, believing that Jesus can raise the dead, is unprecedented in the book so far. You remember the centurion who approached Jesus and believed that he could heal his servant from afar? That was an amazing display of faith. But here, this desperate father believes Jesus could raise the dead. It's immense faith. And it's immense faith with the right object. The ruler comes to Jesus and kneels before Jesus and makes a powerful, faith-filled request. And his request assumes something important for us to notice. I'm sure you've noticed it. It assumes that Jesus has authority over death itself. 
And verse 19 tells us that Jesus rose and followed him. He doesn't ask any questions. There's no more dialogue. He doesn't want to know the medical details. Jesus' concern is with the needs he's presented with. He stops the conversation with John's disciples because this is more important. He immediately goes with the man to his house. And Matthew tells us that his, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, go with him which is no small detail. The disciples are eyewitnesses to everything that's about to happen. Matthew, Jesus' newest follower, lets us know that he saw these things with his own eyes. But their journey is quickly interrupted. Second, we see the woman's faith. Verse 20 says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Matthew's account of this story leaves out a lot of detail that Mark and Luke include. But that shouldn't come as a surprise to you anymore, right? It seems like every sermon these days I have to mention that Matthew's account is the shortest of the three. But that's his mode. That's what he does. He gets to the point And the point is always Jesus. Mark, for instance, tells us that there was a great crowd around Jesus as he's traveling, and they're pushing in from every side. And he tells us that this woman has gone to every doctor she could find, and that she had suffered much at those doctors' hands without any progress in her medical condition. Luke, who is a physician by trade, tells us in Luke 8.43, He says, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Luke, the physician, says she could not be healed. This woman was desperate. She'd been suffering for 12 years with this sickness. The ESV translates this as a discharge of blood. Other translations might say something like a hemorrhage. Most commentators agree that this woman had a sickness that caused constant or prolonged and painful menstruation. And most significantly for that culture was the fact that menstruation caused ritual uncleanness. It wasn't sinful, but you were still rendered unclean. Which which meant that this woman had been unclean for 12 years. Which is hard for us to imagine It's hard to imagine the full impact that would have for you in the society you belong to. She couldn't go to the temple to offer sacrifices. She wasn't allowed in the synagogue. She couldn't worship with the people. If she touched someone, they would be made unclean. She probably didn't have a spouse because of this. Can you imagine the the loneliness and the isolation? But, But once again, here's Jesus. None of the doctors could help. The money is all gone. But Jesus may be able to help her. But she doesn't want the public to think that he's unclean because of her. So she devises a plan. If she just gets close enough to touch his garment, she'll be healed. And that's that that word garment is probably a reference to one of the four tassels that men had to wear on their garments in order to remember the law. They hung loosely at the bottom. And if she just touches one of these dangling tassels, Jesus, Jesus wouldn't even feel it. Right? She can brush past him and 
Even if there's a large crowd, especially, that's a good thing. If she can get up close and just brush her hand on his garment, she'd be healed. So that's what she tries to do. Jesus is passing by. She sees her chance. There's a big crowd around her, around him, like always. So she pushes her way toward him, probably coming up behind him. She reaches out her hand and gently brushes the tassel. Mission accomplished. And now all she has to do is sneak away. But that's not what happens. She doesn't get to sneak away. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Matthew doesn't include all the extra details that Mark and Luke include about the healing. But that's okay. If you want to read those accounts, you should. They're in Mark 5 and Luke 8. All that Matthew records for us here is that Jesus turns to her and encourages her. Imagine someone like this, isolated for so long, 12 years, having the attention of the Savior turned upon her in love and being told to take heart. The last time Jesus said that, take heart, was to the paralyzed man. It means to be encouraged, to be strengthened. This is the only time he calls somebody daughter in the book of Matthew. Take heart, daughter. And I think it hints at the woman's young age, somebody younger than Jesus, a young woman who's been suffering with this for so long. And just like his response to the paralyzed man, he follows with a statement of something deeply profound. Your faith has made you well. Okay, so the the Savior turns to you and encourages you. Can you imagine being told something like that too by Jesus? How wonderful would that feel? The word that Jesus uses here, translated again in the ESV, as made well, is the same word that's most frequently translated as save. In fact, it's, it's almost always translated like that. So it could be read something like this. Take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. But we might ask some, some questions about that statement and about this story in general. Something might feel a bit off. Right? First of all, wasn't her faith like deficient? She's kind of superstitious here, right? She thinks that if she just touches Jesus' cloak, she'd be made well. If someone acted like that today and came up to you and told you their plan for how they were going to be healed, you'd say, you're being a little little weird, a little superstitious. Jesus' clothes weren't magical in some way just because he wore them. Jesus wasn't like a a magic medallion or a four-leaf clover. Why would she think that touching his clothes would do the trick? And secondly, why does Jesus say your faith has made you well instead of I have made you well? What does he mean? Both of these questions are tied together. This woman's faith seems deficient, but Jesus purposefully elevates her faith to an honorable status by saying it has made her well. And it teaches us two things. First, faith is the means by which we are saved. Faith is the means by which we are saved. What I mean is this. Without faith, the woman could not be healed. 
just like you can't hammer in a nail without a hammer. If you place a hammer on a piece of wood next to a nail, the nail will not be driven in. Nothing will happen. It takes a man swinging the hammer to drive the nail. In the same way, Jesus is the one who heals. And the means he uses is the woman's faith. So to to say with proper philosophical language, the woman's faith is the instrumental cause of her healing. Stay with me, it's important. A carpenter uses a hammer as an instrument to drive a nail. But it is through the skill and strength of the carpenter that the hammer is put to use. It's right to say that a carpenter drives a nail. And it's also right to say that a hammer drives a nail. So in the same way, it's right to say that Jesus saves and that we are saved by faith alone. Protestants have boldly proclaimed this truth since the Reformation. We are saved by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And there is nothing else we do in order to be saved. We place our faith, as weak and as troubled troubled and as deficient as it might be, in Jesus Christ, and He does the saving. Which brings us to the second thing we should learn here. It's not the amount or the quality of faith that the woman has that heals her. It's the object of her faith. This woman did not need to have it all together. Her theology was far from perfect. Her understanding of healing wasn't spot on. But Jesus used her faith anyway. She believed that she could only be saved by him. And she was right. And even if she was a little fuzzy on the details, Jesus used her faith. So you don't need to have it all together. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. You don't need to be able to quote every historical confession. You don't have to have a PhD in systematic theology to be saved by faith alone. The right kind of faith isn't the most informed faith. It's not the most pure faith. The right kind of faith has the right object. The right kind of faith is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to place your faith in him. And when you do, trust me when I say you will learn quickly that your faith was always deficient in many areas. And that's okay. Jesus wants to turn to you and say your faith has saved you. Part of the Christian life is growing in faith. And by God's grace, we will. As Paul says in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Amen? Matthew tells us that the woman is instantly healed. The woman's torment and suffering is gone in a moment. Jesus is not made unclean. Matthew doesn't give us any more information about the woman. Where does she go? What does she do? But we can know that she was made well instantly and that her life was changed in a moment because that's how Jesus operates. He cares for those in need and he honors those who place their faith in him. Jesus is not caught off guard by this interruption to the story. He welcomes it and he heals the woman. And then he continues on his way to the ruler's house where third we see the girl here healed. The girl healed. When Jesus comes upon the ruler's house, he's confronted by a noisy crowd. It was required 
by law that you hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner when a family member passed. Even the poor had to do this. And this was a ruler of the synagogue, like I said, probably a wealthy man. So we shouldn't be surprised to find out that there's a large crowd of professional mourners and flute players outside of his house, joined most likely by all of his neighbors in a surrounding area. But Jesus tells them, go away. The girl is not dead but sleeping. We'll come back to that statement in a bit. But the crowd's response to Jesus is full of scorn. The ESV says that they laughed at him. More literally, it's something like they laughed him down. They're making fun of Jesus. He's the butt of the joke. And it's amazing how they turn from their loud mourning to laughter on a dime. Did you notice that? I wonder if Jesus is fed up with fake mourning and fake sorrow. I wonder if he's fed up with fake repentance and this hypocrisy. He's never a fan of it when he encounters it in the Gospels. Anyway, the crowd is thrown out of the house, which is the force of the next line. Not just pushed, they're thrown. And Matthew tells us simply that Jesus walked in, took the little girl by the hand, and the girl arose. And Mark tells us that this girl is 12 years old. Although, I can't help picturing my own daughter here. I'm sure all the fathers in the room would agree, can relate. Jesus' touch heals her. He gently takes her by the hand. And using a word Matthew will later use to describe Jesus, Matthew says, she arose. In Mark and Luke, there are more details, of course. But Matthew doesn't record Jesus saying anything. He walks in, takes her by the hand, and she gets up. He leaves it simply at a profound touch. Despite Jesus having only a small crowd in the room, Matthew says, and the report of this went throughout all that district, the word of her healing would spread fast once this little girl rejoined her friends to play after the mourners had been sent home. This was a very public death, and now all of a sudden, she's alive. The girl is raised back to life. Of course, it's only a temporary restoration. Her body would one day die again. But the faith displayed by her father brought Jesus into her life to great effect. She would never be the same because of her father's actions that day. Which is an especially important point, I think, for parents this morning. It's vitally important, parents, that we demonstrate our faith to our children. As we've seen in this story today, the Lord honors this faith. That doesn't mean that your faith can save your child. But it does mean that the efforts you take to raise your child in Christ will have great effect for their life. Don't downplay that. Display for your children what it means to walk in faith. Are you willing to demonstrate your faith for your children? Like this dignified ruler was willing to bow down before Jesus. Let's not wait until there's a crisis like this to do that. These two healings have a lot in common. Both are young women. Both are unclean. But the biggest takeaway today is this. Salvation is by faith alone. Both instances demonstrate amazing faith. And we've talked about that quite a bit already, about faith. 
So let's talk about the first word in our biggest takeaway today, salvation. There are two truths that we can learn from this story about salvation. The first is Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. In the first healing, the woman does everything that she can to touch Jesus. And she's well aware that her touch is not exactly acceptable, but she knows Jesus can help. She was ritually unclean. And we talked that, about that a, a little bit already. She wouldn't have been able to do much in this society. The unclean weren't allowed in the presence of the Lord. They were supposed to stay to themselves. And even, even items that she touches or beds or benches she sits or lays on would be considered unclean. So when she touches Jesus, she risks making him unclean, unable to go into the presence of the Lord. He would have, if he wasn't Jesus, he would have had to go do ritualistic washings and make particular sacrifices in order to be considered clean again. But the miracle under the miracle of these stories is this. Jesus is not made unclean. The little girl is also unclean. And remember, when Jesus walks into the room, she is a corpse. She's really dead. There's no question about that. Some have said that she could have been in a coma or something, but that wouldn't have been a real raising of the dead as Matthew understands it here. No, she was all the way dead. As Miracle Max would say in the movie The Princess Bride, she was not mostly dead, she was dead dead. Israelites became unclean when they touched a dead body. But Matthew, the author that includes the fewest details, tells us that the girl's father asks Jesus to touch her. And he tells us that Jesus took her hand. Again, he is not made unclean. He is not made unclean either by someone touching him or by him touching someone else. This is incredibly significant because it teaches us something really important about salvation. Jesus is not made unclean when he encounters the unclean. No. When Jesus encounters the unclean, the unclean is made clean. God is not made unclean. God makes things clean. Our sin has made us unclean. We are all, before Christ, unclean. We have iniquity. And Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And if we're to be saved, part of that salvation needs to include the purification of our filthy hearts. And when we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus makes us clean. Praise the Lord. He takes all of our sin and all of our dirt upon himself to the cross. He takes our iniquity, our uncleanness, and he gives us his purity. He clothes us in a new garment. He gives us his righteousness. The two women are not left in an unclean state. Neither are we. A simple touch from Jesus Christ makes us clean. And when we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are made clean. So if this morning you are feeling dirty and dealing with guilt and shame, if you are aware of the iniquity in your life, 
take heart. Jesus can make you clean. He can take all of that and put it on the cross. And he can clothe you in his righteousness. Can I get an amen? Amen. The second truth we learn about salvation from this passage is this. Jesus destroys death. When Jesus approaches the ruler's house, he dismisses the professional mourners by simply saying, go away, which I love. But the reason he gives for the dismissal is this. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. This statement is much more powerful than we realize. Sleep throughout the New Testament is used as a euphemism for death all the time. So some have said that Jesus is simply using that euphemism here. Instead of calling it death, he's just calling it sleep, trying to maybe lessen the blow. But that would be absurd because Jesus would be essentially saying, the girl is not dead but dead. But that's not what Jesus means here. Others have said that Jesus simply has the diagnosis wrong before he enters the room. He must have thought she was only sleeping, maybe in a coma. But in Mark's account, someone from the ruler's house, while Jesus and the ruler are on the road, after he encounters the woman, comes and tells the ruler that his daughter has indeed died. So there's no getting around it. They knew what death looked like. Jesus is not ignorant of what's going on. She's dead and He knows she's dead. So he's not using a euphemism for death because that would be incoherent. And he's not ignorant of her death, simply getting it wrong because he's not ignorant. And he's not lying about her death because Jesus does not lie. So what's going on here? Why does he say this? What does Jesus mean by saying she is not dead but sleeping? Well, he's not making a medical diagnosis, and he's not trying to soften the blow by changing the language. He's making, listen, he's making a Christological statement, a statement about himself as God. In the presence of Christ, death is downgraded. When death is confronted with Jesus, death loses. In the face of Jesus, death is no more than sleep. Jesus is the conqueror of death. And for this little girl, because of the presence of Jesus Christ, death is no more than a little nap. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, death has been destroyed. He has killed death. When Jesus raises the little girl, it foreshadows his own resurrection. But we live on this side of the empty tomb. Jesus has conquered death in his resurrection, and death could not hold him. All those who are now found in Christ have no need to fear death because death has been destroyed. We are saved, even from our great enemy death. All those who believe in the name of Jesus have eternal life. Death is no more than a nap. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? The right kind of faith understands that. Understands that Jesus' resurrection is applied to you. That death is not something to fear. It's just like sleep. 
Something even to be looked forward to and welcome as we go into the presence of the Lord, knowing it's not the end. All those found in Christ will be raised. Are you in Christ? Is that true for you? Or is death still victorious over your life? Are you still living in death? Or are you living in Christ Jesus, who is life itself? Place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you will have life itself. Let's pray. Lord, we we confess that this morning. We confess that you are life. In you is the fullness of life, and that death has been destroyed. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for that truth. That there is nothing that we need to fear, not even death, because you have conquered it all. Lord, we, we ask that we would reflect that in our own lives, that we would not live in a deathly way, but live understanding that we have eternal life now in you. In Jesus' name, amen.